champion Muay Thai kickboxer turned White Ribbon ambassador and member of their trust. Richie Hardcore is a passionate advocate for social change. Professionally, he's in demand as a public speaker, personal trainer and fight coach and his role as an ambassador for... Uh, White Ribbon uh, and his professional public speaking engagements he campaigns to prevent sexual and domestic violence and also works as a sexual consent educator. In our quarter we discuss toxic masculinity, addiction, how fighting helped him growing up and how growing up in West Auckland shaped his life into what it is now. Richie has been a vital part of the White Ribbon Ambassador team and he recently presented to Year 12 and 13 students throughout the Wellington region in their Youth Ambassador Leadership Program. Richie's mission is to help make the world better by supporting people to live their best lives and he can often be seen or heard on national media speaking about all of these issues. This discussion was recorded back in October 2019, so a little while ago now. Uh, when Richie visited uh, Taranaki to speak at an event here. So over a year old this quadril, but still relevant as always. Don't forget where you're listening right here with Best Side. It's Richie Hardcore, except the scaffolding. Sweet. So I always start, man, with um, where did you grow up and where you're born and how'd you come to be and all that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. So I grew up in uh, Glen Eden, West Auckland. Um born in the family home, home birth, to both my parents, who were married at the time, to both my parents. <laughs> you know, there were two parents. Uh, married at the time. Um, my mother still lives in the house. Yeah. Out, out, oh, the house you were born in? Yeah, in the house I was born in. Nuts. Yeah, my placenta is buried in the backyard. Um, with a tree? With a tree, yeah. Cool. Yeah, we had a... Yeah, my mum was a little bit ahead of her time. She's a nurse by training. But I was really into the whole idea of having a home birth and a midwife and a doctor in our, in our casa. Yeah. Yep. My brother was the same. I have a younger brother. Um, yeah, I grew up in West Auckland. Didn't have um, like a particularly healthy childhood. I've talked about that a lot publicly. Because mm, unfortunately, like, alcoholism runs in my family. So my great-grandfather's alcoholic. I never knew him. My, my father didn't know him. Skipped my, my pop on my dad's side, but my dad struggled with alcohol off and on his whole life. So I guess that informs a lot of the work I do today and informs me and who I am. And I'm always trying to still figure out little bits and pieces about my triggers and what's led me to do the public facing work I do now. But it wasn't all bad. It wasn't, um, yeah, it wasn't once warriors. There's lots of positives as well. Mm-hmm. But it, but at the same time, it will, it definitely wasn't healthy, which is interesting. I've been, you know, because I've found myself working in alcohol and drug harm for like Ministry of Health projects and all this sort of stuff. And I do mental health advocacy. I used to do um, the Nutters Club. I used to host that radio show that Mike King started. Oh, yeah. Yeah, off and on as a fill-in. And I do all this stuff and it's all basically me learning about myself <laughs> at yeah, the yeah. same time as trying to help other people. And... Yeah. yeah, totally. You, do, you go on this course. I remember when, you know, I went through quite a patch of depression uh, and for for a few years, and I was doing this training on mental health interventions, and I was sitting, sitting here doing this test, and I put my hand up, and I was like, "Is this this for um, rangatai? Is this this for young people?" And they're like, "No, nah, bro, it's all people." And I was like, "Oh." <laughs> How old were you when you took the test? Uh, that was I think I was about thirty four something. Like oh that. yeah, I'd gone through it. Uh, I got divorced at that age. Thirty four. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah. 
going all over the place. No, I'm good. That's where I started. Yeah, it started out West Auckland. I went to Calston uh, Boys High School, which is a lower, lower decile school. Big um, Maori Polynesian population alongside a lot of Palangi Pakeha kids. And um, I went there, I guess, quite insecure and quite perhaps introverted at 13. Into like reading books and like playing Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't like particularly sporty. I played a little bit of soccer. Didn't really. I wasn't like psyched on it or anything. Um, and I gravitated towards hanging out with kids who are into like Nirvana and punk rock and wear dark hair pink and wear nose rings and kind of were like, yeah, fuck all these rugby playing jocks, you know. And this was in high school. This is in high school and. And obviously we got a hard time and hassled for looking different. Kelsey's got a big rugby school too, eh? Dude, Graham Henry was our principal. <laughs> you know, we were the world first 15 champs in 1995. Shit. So it was like full rugby fever, you know? Like, and you guys are there going like, we were fuck in there, you guys. Yeah, we weren't going like, fuck you guys. But yeah. we would always get hassled and te- teased and all this sort of stuff. And I talk about this now, like... I started doing martial arts when I was 13 and that was like the single most positive transformative thing that's ever happened to me. And so my inner voice started strengthening at the same time as my body started strengthening. And Interesting. Was, and got jumped, you know, like some boys came to beat up one of my mates when I was 15 and I jumped in this fight and like did all good, you know. After that, everyone treated me differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's real interesting when I think about the work I do now, you know, 25 years later, 24 years later, like, you get a bro pass for being good at, like, sports, fighting, girls, cars, all this stupid shit. Yeah. But that really kind of shifted things for me. I went from being one of the outsiders to to still being allowed to be different, but I was kind of cooler, you know what I mean? Yep. And then I started buy, buying into that. When I was going to ask, like... When I you, started buying... You... When I started thinking about my development as a man... I cut my curly hair off, got a got a fade, took my nose ring out, you know, like started. You're like I'm I'm in now. So. Uh, yeah, yeah, without even realizing it, I still had different ideas, like my ideas about society and what how I think. Mm-hmm. How I guess have always been. But when we're young and that, well, my 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 thoughts are when we're young and that old, we want to be accepted, mm. don't we? So when someone offers you the baton, you grab it. Yeah, I got. I became like popular. Yeah. You, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I became a prefect. I went from being like this outsider to like being a prefect based on like popular vote of students, you know, which is fucking weird. Yeah. Sorry, can I? Yeah, yeah. And um. Which, but at the same time, that wasn't my internal narrative. I never really felt popular. I never really felt particularly. I never felt cool. Was that um, conflict quite prominent? Like what was going on with you kind of getting into the inner sanctum, so to speak, and and then but it was, was still part of you going like, fuck man, this isn't you, bro. I still feel like that. Okay. To, to some degree. Yep. It's weird being here with you now. I'm like, wow, someone's like flowing me down to a different <laughs> city. You know, like yeah. when people invite me to do things, there's still a tiny little voice in me that's quite insecure and has an imposter syndrome. I was about to say that. And I'm like, like, really? They want to, they want me to talk, do you? So it's interesting how your, your, your formative experiences take so long to get over for a lot of us. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm just, I just kind of like, 
wing it. <laughs> I just like fake it till I make it, and it's worked out so far. So quite hard. Take me back to um the you mentioned like when you took on the MMA when you started getting into that. You were thirteen when you started. Yeah, so not MMA. Yeah, I started a martial art called Taekwondo. It's a Korean martial art, and um. My dad was in a period of re- recovery then, so he was sober, and took me up to the local school, in, Taekwondo school, and well, I was talking to my old man about this recently, relatively recently. I was like, why did he take me there? And he said to me, that he took me up there and he said, I'm not doing the best job as a dad to the instructor, can you help my son out? And, you know, I've told that story before, but I, I still reflect that that's actually like a big thing for a man to say to another man, you know? Not, yeah, yeah so my dad took me up there and I just really fell in love with it. It was like the first thing I was good at, like I had a natural propensity to it. Mm-hmm. In what way? Give me some examples. What what made you gel with it or what made you good at it from the get-go? Uh... Well, I guess I was pretty angry, like, and underneath all my insecurities and low self-esteem, I had, like, a tenaciousness driven by a deep-seated anger, yeah, yeah. which I still have. I've just had to learn to, like, handle it, you know what I mean? And, and I liked it. I liked getting a blood mouth. I liked, like, having bruised knuckles. I liked having to turn up on time and bow and work really hard and do a stupid amount of push-ups because it's old-fashioned training on a wooden floor in a community hall, you know? I liked fighting. Mm. I didn't... Yeah, I, yeah, maybe... Do you know why? Like, what was it? just made me feel... Yeah, I guess retrospectively. I mean, I didn't understand this. Course, you, yeah, when I was 13, 14, yeah, 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 15. Yeah, yeah. But I think retrospectively, when you're in uh, combat, you're in a flow state, you know? Yeah. Like... I can't remember knowing how to articulate anxiety or or sadness or a whole range of emotions that I experienced as a young person, but I know that I felt great fighting or after fighting or after training. And so I kept doing it, <laughs> basically. Like, it made me feel good. It made me feel like I was kind of worth something. There were some older men, like older guys, who kind of took me under their wing. I did Taekwondo for five years, and then I transitioned to Thai boxing, there's an older boy at school when I was 17 and he was like, Taekwondo is a right bro, but come to Thai boxing, bro. And then this is the G shit. Oh, yeah. So I went down to the... To Balmoral. Called you out. Yeah. He was like, <laughs> like took me down to Balmoral League R, which is, a, you know, still a world famous, was a world famous gym. It started heaps of our mm. very best fighters. Uh, and went down there when I was 17 and I was like, oh, this is some real shit. It was, I was like, this is so much more... Mm, combat effective than what I was doing because again retrospectively when you're scared on the inside you can gravitate towards things that make you tough to protect yourself Mm. you know like a lot of my friends who've got into like gangs or crime or whatever same sort of thing I was just fortunate to find something positive you know we all cover our bodies and tattoos and we try and get muscular or big or whatever and it, some honestly, sort of area of same focus sort of thing. or something yeah, to exactly. that energy towards. Yeah, I was just fortunate that what I was mm, had good role modelling within that environment and kept me away from, yeah, drugs and alcohol and crime and all that sort of stuff and built, built my self-esteem up. And over a, the course of time taught me how to be disciplined. Yeah. So during... Um all of that, all your training and fighting and stuff, when, does, you've done professional fights before? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. how did that transition go from a being, I guess, 
something fun or something to drink the energy into and something to distract yourself with or yeah or um yeah how did that change come about yeah cool so i had my first competitive taekwondo fight when i was 13 and yeah i was like straight into it i lost but i kept it up and then i started winning you know we used to do these old school tournaments on mats you know so you turn up in your dobok you know like a gi yep and bow and do some point fighting and all that and i was all right at that and started winning tournaments here and there and then i started the tie boxing at the same time and when i was 18 i had my first tie boxing fight i was training at balmoral league R, but i wasn't fighting and then my friends had to have a gym called strike force a guy called aaron boys who i knew through the martial arts scene that was his that's his gym they continue to be a successful gym and without thinking about it, he get, uh, and when he asked me if I wanted to have a fight for his gym, I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, like, which then, yeah, then I was like, oh, that's a bit disrespectful to my current trainer. You know, but you're a kid, I wanted to fight. So yeah. we drove down to Hamilton and I, and I fought this, you know, I fought a man from Rotorua, you know, and I smashed him, you know, like oh, dropped him and gave him a good, you know, gave him a pretty good hiding. And then I was still in high school. And then I was like, oh, this is, so, you know, like, I've, I was like the man. Yeah, I felt it. And like, everyone's attitude, you know, it's just another thing. And I, and I know now I was buying into, and the people around me buying into those constructs of masculinity and what gives us worth as men. And it's these external things, which aren't actually necessarily positive. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, though, like, you take a lot out of the whole journey in combat sports about discipline and turning up on time and watching what you eat and sacrificing you know grat- gratification with partying or whatever for a bigger goal and it yeah i really loved it and i wouldn't fight for two more years i went back and trained at Balmoral for two more years and they went through a bit of a closing period or a transition period and one of the head students a guy called john conway he was opening his little gym, which was near where I lived in West Auckland, and he's like, oh, come train for me, come train with me. And so he'd get me running at fucking six in the morning, <laughs> you know, like every day. Yeah. Which at the time... How I'm old like, were you in this? 18. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I think I was 18 when I started mucking around with him. Or maybe 20. Actually, I was probably 20 when I started. Yep. The problem with old fighters, we've got bad memories. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I was 20 when I started. A few hits to the dome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> When I started running with Rebel, John, John the Rebel Conway, and Rebel was still fighting when I started training with him. And he's like, what do you want to be? You know, what do you want to do with Thai boxing? I was like, oh, I want to be a New Zealand champion. And he really built me up, you know, like he made me work real hard and, um, yeah, just built me up in, in Thai boxing and his style and built me to my first New Zealand title. And then I'd go on to win with him like five more New Zealand titles. And, sure. South Pacific title and back in 2009 and you know the King in the Ring yep or Jason Sadi before the King in the Ring he used to have a four man tournament so he just had to fight two guys to be the winner I won I won that for my weight class back in the day and so he made me like a good successful amateur fighter you know these are all amateur titles so two minute rounds not three minute rounds mm-hmm. um and but then yeah but then I wanted to I guess take it to a higher level and yeah just switched over to fighting professionally really like I didn't have a big goal of being like the world pro champ or anything but I just wanted to start fighting under pro rules yep and um I think I had my first pro fight in Thailand maybe 2008 or something no 
I can't remember. Oh, no, nah, 2007, I fought a guy in Australia, <laughs> Greg Foley. He's in jail now. Um, yeah, and I fought, I'd gone to Thailand to train and I felt right, super tough. And I came back and got offered this fight against Greg Foley, his top, top, he was the man back in the day. He smashed my head and <laughs> like literally like fractured my skull. I had to take a year off competing. But I kept up the training. So that was my first pro fight. And then I just, yeah, just went from there. Your first pro fight was getting your head cracked. Yeah, literally. You can feel the dent in my eyebrow still. Sure. I never got the surgery to repair it, you know. But, um, yeah. So I never went on to achieve massively as a professional. But I had a good pro career. Like, fought some good dudes and won more than I lost. And, um, yeah, started coaching at the same time as I was doing my own training. And some of the guys that I've coached have gone on to... Well, they don't, I don't train them anymore necessarily. They've gone on to have good professional careers in either Thai boxing or MMA. Okay. So it's been cool to just play a little part in their journeys as yeah, well. Yeah, you know sure. what I mean? I pass, pass on the sort of the stuff that I've learned, you know? Yeah. So I was doing the both. I was doing my own fighting. I was doing coaching. Then I went to university too. So I was doing all that at the same Far time. Out. Busy man. Yeah. Well, I had a lot of energy in my 20s. You know? <laughs> yeah. What were you studying at uni? I ended up doing, um, I went back to uni at 26, and I did uh, four years of study, uh, and I did a double major in political science and Spanish, and then I did my honours in Spanish. Spanish is just not just a language, a lot of sociological stuff around history and culture, yeah. and, you know, so right now there's all these... Yeah, like learning Maori, like yeah, it's not yeah. just... It's exactly, not just bro. language, you, you learn tikang on a marae and yeah. food and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so that stuff, but then also a lot of the socioeconomic stuff as well and historical stuff. So now in Chile right now, right, so I'm not sure if you're familiar, but Chile in South America um, has had massive street protests, arson, fire, the military have taken to the streets, people have been shot. No. I, I won't lie, I've seen it, but I don't know what it's for. So I'm interested. Like, yeah, well, that's the yeah. sort of stuff I studied at uni. I went to university, I ended up getting a scholarship and going to university in Chile. Sure. Yeah, because, um, sorry, no, got, I kind of don't have a clear narrative because I do all these things yeah. concurrently. Very cool, that's all good. Um, when I was 24, I, ch- I chased a girl I was in love with who was going on holiday to Mexico, right? And um, I got this real interest in Latin America. I went to Chiapas, which is one of the poorest regions in Mexico, strong indigenous presence, you know, obviously indigenous people historically marginalized and excluded from the system. Yep. And um, I was like, what is all this? I was just thinking, I like how you and I are like, yep, we, yep, we yeah, know that. Yeah. Even, even yeah, there's yeah. a lot of people who would probably disagree. We were, no, it's true. We were both like, yep, we know. If you disagree with the fact that First Nations peoples, whether here in Aotearoa or America Latina or... Australia or North America aren't historically discriminated against and excluded from the system. You are either not reading books or you're reading the wrong books. You know, mm. like you cannot deny that. People are not stuck in cycles of poverty and trauma because they feel like it or because they're because of their race or ethnicity. It's like a racist assertion to say that. There are huge amounts of data and evidence and research which will point to epigenetics and transmission of trauma you know through the generations and man it's been coming up so much lately in my conversation well you have to talk about it um or just you know the i don't want to say theory but 
just the the, the term yeah transgenerational mm. trauma has been, been been coming up a lot. Well, well, you know, we started the conversation, and you're like, "Why do you do what I do?" I'm like, "Well, my great grandfather was an alcoholic mm. who left my great grandmother." Did you know yeah. that impacted my grandfather, which obviously impacted my dad on some level, which in turn impacted me. Yeah, you know, and if you th- if you put that in the macro sense. Well, that's happened to like entire peoples whose yep. whole countries have been taken away and their women have been raped and their land's been confiscated and their people have been murdered and their language has been banned. And that's why so many years later there's still so that shit. going on. All these people are like, well, how long are you going to do affirmative action for? How long is the funding going to go on for? Yeah. It's like, as long as it takes, dude. As long as it takes. Anyway, went to Mexico, got this real interest in Latin America and the injustice I saw. I remember this kid came up and licked our plates. When we were sure. picking up, you know, like it's a memory that now I've never been able to get rid of, you know, people that was like harsh poverty in, in parts of the place contrasted with, you know, affluent tourists. So when I went mm. back to university in 2006, I wanted to understand that situation. So I took Spanish, but then I looked at politics. You mean the situation of, of why things are like that yeah. part of the book? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I, I started learning about neoliberal capitalism and NAFTA and... Um, and how old are you at this stage? 20, 26. Okay. Yeah, and I was 26 at uni. Yeah, as an old student. So I was one of those annoying people who like... Which is funny because like, at the time it's like such a big deal. But now when you look at it, you're probably like, fuck, I'd go again. Like, oh, who cares? I'm not... like you put it in a place now where you can remove the ego from... Yeah. Well, you might have even done it back then. But no, I know no. a lot of people, my friends and stuff, who went back at 25, 26... There's quite a bit of stigma and ego I, around it. I, whereas now they're yeah. like, fuck, bro, I'll go back tomorrow and I would not give a shit. Well, I might go back next year. I'm thinking about doing my master's, cool. potentially. Yeah. If I get around to filling out the um, application. <laughs> the hardest part. Yeah, it's the hardest part, <laughs> writing my methodology. Um, but yeah, I was 26 and I started really learning about why things are the way they are. Mm. You know, I did an undergrad and then did a postgrad. I did my honours dissertation on um, El Salvador's gang culture. And how Crazy. how it um, eventuated and came to be, and they gave me a set of skills that. So tell us what, give us a summary of that, because yeah, I mean, obviously I know it exists, but I have no idea how it came to be and, and why they're there and stuff. So. <laughs> okay, and I know really? we could talk forever. Yeah, but sure. Just, yeah. just give me right. your, your let's give me a brief summary of. Well, okay, sure. Well. Uh, no whole bad then we can talk about anything yeah. and everything. There's there's no particular. Um... Uh, <laughs> all right. Okay, so I went to the, I so when I was at university, I did a lot of uh, contextual. Uh, I used a lot of film as a, as a point of reference to get better at the language of Spanish. Yep. But then also looking at, you know, cultural things and context and yeah. So I watched... Just an easier way for you to learn yeah. and digest stuff. Cool. I used to listen to like... Spanish. You were doing YouTube before yeah. it was called YouTube. I used to listen to like Spanish hip-hop and all this shit on CD and all this. Anyway, I went and watched this movie called Hijos de la Guerra. Uh, no, that's a lie. I went and saw um, Sin Nombre, The Nameless. Um... And it was about, it was a, drip, a fictional film. It was about a kid trying to um, escape, I think, from Honduras and t- through Mexico, or maybe he was in South Mexico, into the United States, right? But he was um, like a hangaround of a gang called MS-13. You might have seen mm-hmm. them. Or um, La Mara Salvatrucha, right? And I was, I was really taken with the heavily facial tattooing that they had because the only other place I'd seen that was here in Aotearoa, mm. where... Um, where our people who are in gangs, a lot of them have got heavy facial tattoos, yep. particularly Māori. I was like, oh, that's fascinating. So I, I was curious. And so, um, yeah, I started doing some reading and talking to my professor, 
shout out Catherine Lehman. You're awesome. And uh, she was like, you could write a thesis about it. Why didn't you trace the history? And I was like, for real, for real. So what happened in El Salvador, like in all of Latin America, and it ties back into what to the conversation I started with Chile and didn't finish, is that there is an, an oligarchy of wealthy power elites who have this massive hold on power and land and uh, uh, and wealth and, and and there's also like a race element to that too like indigenous people are further down the social ladder is it kind of like they I guess like a colonialism yeah 100% yeah. they just were colonised by the Spanish yep. whereas we were colonised by the English and um, there's you know so uh, in El Salvador the, there was a Mm, revolutionary communist force, the FMLN, I think. You have to check my acronyms on that, sorry. It's been a while since yeah. I did my paper. Who wanted to overthrow the government and put communism in power. You know, just like there was the um, revolution in Cuba, mm. similar stuff in, um, similar stuff had happened in Chile in 1970. Okay. Uh, a Marxist president, Salvador Allende, was democratically elected but overthrown by the armed forces in 1973 mm, with the support true. of the United States to ensure that a Marxist government, socialist government, wasn't in power and a role model to the other states in Latin America. Like, yep. all through Latin America, there was this Cold War between Soviet-backed, mm, communist-influenced, socialist-influenced revolutionary States groups well. and the United <clears throat> States who wanted to impose their the model opposite. of yep. mm, democratic capitalism, right? So in El Salvador, this happened, and the United States forces uh, supported the government and trained them in all sorts of counterinsurgency techniques, including, like, horrific torture and violence. The country was super war-torn. So a huge exodus of Salvadorian refugees ended up in Los Angeles. And there, they were picked on by other uh, marginalized peoples and gangs, so African-American gangs, Mexican gangs. And they formed their own gang as a means of community and self-defense. And yeah. they, they were called MS-15, La Mara Salvatrucha. And um, they just come from a war-term country. So they, they started just being horrifically violent in, in the streets of Los Angeles. As refugees, often illegal, they didn't have pathways to um, official services to help them. Yep. You know, uh, pathways to Some employment. Some places that didn't even exist. Yeah, yeah, right. exactly. So, so um, you've joined the gang, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's your whānau, that's your, your yeah, camaraderie. exactly, yeah. Anyway, American uh, policy started deporting criminals and gang members from Los Angeles back to El Salvador, mm. where gang culture had not historically been a part of Salvadorian society. So, yeah, so the gang started in L.A. and they exported not only people who had committed crimes, but the gang culture. See, back. a lot of people, well, I know that I would have, my, my assumption would have been that it started and they, brought, they came to the States, so it wasn't the other nah, way around. started in America. Yeah. Started in America, went back to El Salvador, a country with weak social structures, you know, just recovering from a civil war, um, awash with armaments, drug trade starts... Um, flourishing in Colombia, um, boom, you get this massive explosion. The, the term is called blowback, like unintended policy consequences that turn around and bite in the ass, right? 
So La Marisa Vitrucha exploded and started spreading all through Central America, all through Mexico and back into the United States where they started committing horrific street-level violence, dealing drugs, being involved in all manner of criminal enterprises. But the root cause of that is that the United States supported yeah. the government to prevent regular people like you and me, peasants, people who were like living in like third world poverty from having a great act, mm. set of rights and access to power and more equitable distribution of wealth. Imagine if that hadn't happened. Imagine if there was a socialist guy. I'm not saying socialism is the answer, but I'm yeah, just yeah. saying, like, let's, let's consider that if there had been a more equitable society, if there had been less pooling of wealth in 1% of the population, like continues today throughout the world, if people had had healthcare and sanitation, if the kids weren't hungry, imagine if that had happened. Like, I get emotional talking about it mm. because we still have these problems today. What's happening in Chile today, people getting shot by the military in the streets, is because there is a small percentage of people who own all the all wealth and there are people who are living on like $150 a month, you know what I mean? Who don't have access to um, healthcare and medicine and fucking food. Like, all the basics of having a, a a thriving, not just surviving, but a thriving existence. You know what I mean? And that's by policy. It's not by accident. That's by design. Like, um, and I think that's something that we need to be, continue to be aware of. And then it's the same here. That it wasn't by accident. It's not mean? by accident. It's by design. You know, there is, if you, if you look at how um, the model of capitalism that we here in New Zealand have is the same one that was imposed in Chile, um, how that has meant that there hasn't been a trickle down of wealth from the top, but there's been a pooling of wealth at the top, mm-hmm. and there's been an, a massive growth in the, the 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 wealth that the rich have accumulated, while it's largely stagnated for people at the bottom. Do you know what I mean? Like, yep. and then all the problems that stem from that. I think those are conversations that we need to have, you know. But at the moment, we don't do that. I can't even conceptualize an alternate political system to what we have now, but I know that something better has to be out there. Yeah, yeah. That's the, that's the thing that comes up when those sort of things roll around, eh? like when election years and stuff like that, and obviously people's opinions on politics and stuff comes to the forefront. It's kind of like the one time of the year that people are comfortable actually talking about it with friends. I do it all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So then yeah. When, it, when it comes up, though, people are like, well, what's the alternative? Well, more I, I common than not, a lot of people will do say, oh, shit, I don't know. I think that speaks to the power of media. I think, think, think that speaks to the fact that we have really bad education around politics mm-hmm. and civics and why things are the way they are. I get fired up every year because people think there's only two fucking parties. Yeah, I know. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that makes, me, MP. Yeah. makes me angry. I think, like, the Scandinavian model seems what to... What do they do? Why I again that's thing I'm not an expert on it so yeah, yeah. anyone listening to this what is your perception of what they do my I'll perception rephrase of what they do I'll rephrase is, is that they've got a more equitable taxation system and higher social spending by the government and that means that they have less gap between rich and poor mm. people get paid more and they've got better healthcare and education all that sort of shit as an example seems to be like less of a gap between the haves and the have-nots yeah and that in turn has led to all manner of positive social outcomes they seem to treat a lot of yeah that sort of stuff as um like public health yeah as opposed to well as i think what, it, i think there's a, just, the word, there's a broader i think more broadly 
if you follow the model of like UK, you know, Margaret Thatcher said there's no such thing as society, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan in the 80s, we had Rogernomics under the Labour government and Roger Douglas massively um, lowered taxes for the rich to uh, broke down trade unions to uh, 1991 mother of all budgets under Ruth Richardson and cut benefits like massively and you see this growth in inequality stemming from all of these sorts of things it, it becomes more about me than about we mm. you know in New Zealand it to be a, a really equal society this you know in the 70s but now we are really unequal yeah you know and um that's not by accident. It's not because, like, particular ethnic group is lazy and don't work hard enough. You know, it's because there are structural barriers and causatives to all these sorts of things that we need continued help to overcome. Now, I'm not going to say capitalism is bad for me personally. You know, like, I've, I'm, I have more disposable income than I imagine my parents did at my age. Mm. I've been able to transcend, like, the emotional and difficult circumstances, the difficult emotional circumstances and dysfunction in my childhood to be like, have a degree of financial freedom. I'm not wealthy, I don't own a home, but I get to travel all the time. You know, like I, I make money doing what I enjoy doing. I have downtime. You know, like I get to buy a stupid amount of sneakers. You know, like- <laughs> Is that your voice? Um, is it? It's up there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah. Well, you know, like, it's drying up now as my social capital fades, but, you know, influencers get seen a lot of shoes and shit, you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. Not so much anymore, you know, it's a competitive market. I'm, <laughs> I'm getting old, there's younger, cooler people out there. But, you know, you know, like, there are positives that have happened for me and for a lot of people like me, but at the same time, I'm sick of my friends killing themselves. Mm. And I'm sick of people fucking just not living life to their fullest extent. Like, everyone's on anti-anxiety medication these days. Everyone's on antidepressants these days. Either by prescription or they're fucking smoking a honey bag a week or a day or they're drinking every night or they're in relationship after relationship after relationship looking for some sort of inner peace that they think the person that they're fucking that they met on Tinder might bring them people are eating themselves to an early grave because when you're sad fucking ice cream makes you feel good for a minute mm. so does McDonald's and and we could change all that if we allowed people to have a broader understanding of what success is but at the moment still like it's buying stuff and being wealthy and we still measure our country's success by GDP and do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. We, we lord wealth and affluence as success, but it's not because we're richer. Well, some of us are richer, but we're unhappier. Mm. <laughs> like, and that's proven statistically. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, like, there's a fuckload of data that, you know, like I, that, I, that I could pull up in two seconds on Google for you about we've had a steady rise in wealth for a, for a percentage of the population at least. And materially, even our poorer people are better off than they used to be. But so many of us are fucking way less happy. Mm. And to me, that speaks volumes to the fact that our broadest system and the values within that system 
don't work. We're isolated further and further from what makes us well, which is each other. We are social creatures. Mm. Humans are dependent on one another for all manner of social safety nets. You know, we're made to hug and love and laugh and argue and discuss things in person and materially we need one another to do well, you know, like children can't look after themselves. Mm. But our modern world is one where we are texting and Instagramming and social mediaing and working long hours and we're out the door before our kids get up and we're home when they are already asleep and we never see our partners and when we do we're like way too tired to make out and we eat junk food because it's easy and it's quick and we never see the fucking natural world and then we wonder why everyone feels like shit and why we have like record levels of suicide and substance abuse and domestic violence mm. it's like well take a look at the world that we're creating or we've created and we're yeah. not changing you know what I mean that's what I'm talking about tomorrow here you know mm-hmm. you know, I'm not a health expert my academic training as I've said is around politics and I look at society through that lens it's all well and good to eat kale and do yoga and <laughs> be on a ketogenic diet and have a excellent PB for your bench press squat and deadlift but that's an individual approach to wealth uh, sorry health we actually need greater broader sweeping social changes so everyone can have access to that because mm. if you're poor you're not eating fucking kale salads and on a ketogenic diet you're eating whatever you can afford mm. and you don't have time to pay your kids a nutritious meal do you know what I mean? yeah for sure but even wealthy people have got... Well, they've still got... They're they're, still... No matter how rich you are, you're not immune to disconnection. Exactly, bro. That's what I'm saying. uh, So it's like... Yeah, exactly. So but before we get into, I guess, um, you know, the social social sweeping of change and things that are um, going on and also that disconnection, I want to go a little bit into your personal story and then kind of how you came to be and then we'll, we'll divert back to things that we view happening in society at the moment and we've mentioned social constructs and stuff we can go into how those are affecting everyone at the moment Mm. with your with your own story you've mentioned a few times now about you having kind of a rough upbringing or or not an ideal upbringing Mm. however you want to put it was this something that kind of happened was it one moment that kind of switched and you realized what was going on or were things happening from as early as you can remember and what was going on yeah, sure. So, you know, my dad lives in the world, you know, mm-hmm. and I acknowledge that when people started asking me about my life publicly on radio and TV and stuff, I asked him permission to talk about our life because I'm not trying to dishonor him, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because for all the difficult stuff, my dad loved me and my dad taught me that it was okay to cry and... Here's a man That's of, massive. A lot of people's yeah, dads don't teach them that. I know. He literally told me... I got beat up one time when I was 15 and I was real frustrated about it and I was crying and he literally told me, quote, unquote, it doesn't mean good to cry, it's all right, you know? And that's a cool thing. That's fucking awesome. For, um, 
for him to have taught me, taught me how to read. Especially in that time. Especially like, in that time, yeah. You know, like some would argue not even now, but I, I feel like from what I'm seeing, a lot more people are starting to open up and, and be open to that idea. But fuck, not this, now, no. in the 70s, 80s, 70s 80s, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not that old. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, mean, you mentioned, yeah, you mentioned 70s, so that's yeah, yeah, why yeah, I said yeah. it. Um, <laughs> no, but like, but the, the other shit is, though, is that like, he had shit going on that he didn't know how to deal with and alcohol was the answer, you know what I mean? And, uh, and that meant that, yeah, from from a young age, I was in an unstable environment, you know, from zero to ten. Um, shit was difficult and then my dad got sober and then he relapsed, actually, not long after that conversation that I was telling you about. And I um, started drinking again when I was a teenager and that was what I remember the most. Because um, really quite formative. Yeah, and also yes. I was becoming a man, and mm. I was physically bigger and stuff. So when my father would be like verbally abusive towards my mother, I wouldn't stand for it, mm. and would end up, you know, like, you know, I punched out my own dad, which sucks, you know. Or he'd be threatening to me, and I'd be like, "What? Fucking, let's go then," you mm. know. You know, like I said, I started doing martial arts, and I was comfortable with fighting and. Yeah, I fought with my own dad, which sucks, really, when I think about it. Not all the time. This is like three or four times or something, you know? But it sucks when your dad calls the police on you, you know? Mm. Like, that's not the coolest shit that ever happened to me. Yeah. And, um, but then, obviously, the police are like, come around and they're like, oh, what's going on? And take my dad away, you know? But this is the sort of shit I grew up with, you know, visiting my father and, you know, when that relapse, that relapse, he was only drinking for about a year or something and... You know, visit him in rehab and residential treatment centres and um, you don't know how to articulate those things. And it's weird when everyone else at school seems a bit fucking normal mm. and you're like... At that age too. Yeah, yeah you're insecure and you're, you're playing the comparison trying to game fucking... Yeah, I yeah, know, you're like, you know, you're thinking about girls and you want to be cool and all this shit's going on. Yeah, so needless to say, I was fucking not particularly academically successful at high school despite being in like top stream you know like you know god gave me a brain and i didn't really use it in high school because uh, i was busy dealing with all that shit and mm. figuring my shit out but i'm grateful that martial arts gave me a positive you know what i mean because a lot of my friends got real into drugs and alcohol and stuff you know out in west auckland everyone was you know the people i hung out with was were smoking weed and massive binge drinking man like when I think back now, as someone who's worked in alcohol and drug harm reduction for the, you know, like, the ministry and that, I'm like, yo, I hung out with, like, a gnarly subsection. And that's what I've come to understand as an adult, is that when you grow up with trauma, we grow up with instability, you gravitate more often than not to people who um, make you feel at home. Mm. And for me, what feels Which like... Which means more, they've gone through shit too. Yeah, they've gone through, through so shit too. you band together. You band together and it's just like, your misfit game, what's <laughs> yeah, up? Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so, yeah, all our parties were, like, typified by, like, like pretty gnarly violence. Boys smashing each other's fucking heads in, riot police coming around. Again, this is not all the time. Mm. Sometimes we just had a good fucking time. Yeah. We made out with some, like, girl and, like... It was cool and everything was fine and there was music and bands and, you know, like, cool, normal teenage shit. But other shit was, like, gnarly, man. Like, and so, yeah, the work I do now is informed by that. I don't want kids doing that to one another. You know, I think about some of the fights we get into and 
fucking Owen died, you know? You know, yeah, gnarly, dude. How do the kids react when you tell them these stories? Um, to be honest, when I'm speaking in schools, I don't speak this frankly. When I speak in schools, I speak a, a fraction less. I speak like I'm speaking, like yeah, I'm yeah. hearing. You're truthful, but yeah, you just I'm truthful, but I don't go down a few other words. Yeah, when I, yeah, exactly. Or when I'm speaking in schools, also, I speak, I guess, more of a preventative lens. It's not so much a personal story like yep. I'm giving you now. Mm-hmm. I hear some shit, and then I'll, you know, I'll overlap my shit a little bit, but it's not, it's not like I'm talking to you now. Although I imagine for a lot of them, they'd connect. Yeah, I try and balance that. Because when you're speaking to an audience, there's going to be a whole bunch of people in there who've had bad stuff happen. Mm. You know, I've definitely spoken at schools talking about family violence and sexual violence and stuff, and it's been really positive in that it's caused or encouraged a kid to reach out and talk to services. I've had a few teachers get in touch and be like, hey, you know, these kids went and did this, this and this after you came, so it makes me feel like my life's doing the right thing at the moment. Cool. Yeah, but yeah, I don't know. And then my old man got sober, but then he relapsed when I was like 31. Like I had like a 15 year stint. And um, in hindsight, I think that that impacted me in ways that I didn't understand uh, then, because that's eight years ago. And um, yeah, that was difficult too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It's, it's interesting, you know? Like uh, addiction's a fucking hard one. Mm. And. Um, what I'm learning is that there's not a lot of support that's really clearly available. There is support out there for people who are affected by other people's addictions. Because there's a huge impact on that. You know, if you grow up with a parent who's got substance abuse issues or mental health issues or both, because there's a comorbidity often between those things, then, yeah, it's going to shape you. Because I think about, this sounds crazy, but... When I, think, when I think about um, the girls that I've had relationships with, whether casual relationships or serious relationships, not all of them, but a lot of them have been through trauma. And, I, and I'm like, oh, shit. You know, looking through everything now and all the co-pop I'm involved in and how I look at the world as I'm evolving. And the tools you're savvy to The tools I'm savvy to that I didn't have then. We were just hurt kids, half people being whole for a minute. Do you know what I mean? And, and we found some solace in one another with a... I'm writing that down quickly. <laughs> Carry on, though. <laughs> and, and that's interesting when I think about it. And, and, that, and that sounds crazy, but um, that tends to be what happens. And, you know, I, 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 and that's true for a lot of people in, in, the, in the space that I work in, you know? You, you, you... Yeah, you find your normal, you know, no matter how unhealthy that normal is. And then do you think those relationships work out? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so when, you know, when I've been speaking with people at Women's Refuge in a professional setting, I used to do some co-facilitation uh, last year at Shine, which is an anti-violence organisation, and run groups for men who'd been offenders, right? And you'd hear their, hear their stories in group, and their partner is damaged in a way that has gravitated, made them gravitate towards them. And that man has used violence. So that little girl, as a woman, is recreating the violence she might have observed or experienced as a child. And that man is perpetrating the violence that he's observed or experienced as a child. And it's just that it goes back to our earlier conversation around the transmission of trauma. Mm. And what it takes is for people to unlearn and do that healing and do that deep work, which takes a long time. Mm. So hopefully any um, tamariki and nekia don't recreate it. 
It's about breaking it. Don't inherit it. They don't inherit it. It's hard though, you know. So, what's your relationship with alcohol like these days? Mm. I haven't drunk for 12 years. And I didn't really drink much before that. Uh, Yeah. I... Um, I distinctly remember we were all going through the graveyard. We used to go hang out in the graveyard because that's what like weird kids do. And my friends started smoking weed and drinking, you know, from forty and shit when we were about fifteen. Which at um, things weren't good at home at yeah fifteen or sixteen things weren't good at home because dad's drinking. And so I was like, nah, I don't. I'm not into it. But then I experimented a little bit from like 16, 17. You know, I would drink a little bit. I'd get drunk. You know, like I've puked up. I've definitely like done dumb dumb shit drunk. But I never really took to it. I always was very, very cautious around it, around alcohol and had a funny relationship with it. And, um, but I never had my own drinking problem. So in my early 20s, I drink a little bit, but like four or five times a year, like literally six, you know, like. Maybe six or seven. But most people thought I didn't drink anyway. Mm. And so I was always kind of weird about it. But um, I don't miss it. Yeah, I didn't quit drinking uh, because I had a problem like my father or a lot of people I know. I just didn't do it much and I didn't have a bit of time for it. And um, yeah, people around me did have problems with alcohol in our 20s. And I just wanted to be as different as possible to that. Do you, do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. I've always wanted to be as different as possible to what I see going on around me if I think it mm, is the right thing to do. Excuse me. Because I, I do believe that to some degree the personal was political. So I've always had an anti-stance, even though I drank, and then I would swim full, like, yeah, nah, fuck alcohol. <laughs> I've come to learn, because I, I was quite a self-righteous, judgmental <laughs> asshole in my 20s, uh, that lecturing people... And making them feel bad about their substance use is the worst thing you can do if you mm. want them to change. Mm. You actually just have to be your best you and role model the benefits of sobriety. And if people want to change, they'll come to you. And then you're like, sure, here are some ideas that you may like to apply, but telling them what to do, when to do it. This is what for me. Yeah, that's better, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's a shame with a lot of our modern age, you know, like, woke culture, Mm. called-out culture, uh, you know, like, liberal fascism is about telling people off and making them feel bad and cancelling them and shaming them. Yo, I've worked in behaviour change industry, like, not industry, fields, you know, alcohol and drug professionally, family violence professionally, mental health advocacy. Do you know what doesn't make an effective practitioner in any of those fields using shame and guilt and publicly humiliating people for thinking or acting the wrong way. Mm. And yet that's how a lot of our public discourse is these days. It's stupid. But yeah, so my alcohol, my alcohol relationship is I don't have one. Was it a co- conscious decision to like give it up or was it something that kind of just like nah, fuck yeah, up it was. six months? Yeah, no, so I, um, well, I was in Chile Going, you know, this is funny. I was in. <laughs> it all ties in. And it all ties in. I was in Valparaiso, and I had a few drinks. I had a few drinks. One new, it was New Year's Valparaiso, cool. Um, and I woke up the next day, and I had a little bit of a hangover from the pisco sours, which is a traditional drink. And then I just was like, not really into drinking anymore. I'll try out not drinking because I didn't really drink much anyway, right? Mm. 
And then it was three months, and then it was six months, and then it was 12 months, and then it was like, oh, fuck, it's been two years, and now it's been 12. So, yeah, it was a conscious decision, not because I was doing stupid shit drunk. I mean, last time I got fucked up drunk, I was 24. You know, like, my partner and I had had, like, a thing, and I was like, I'm going to get fucked up drunk, and we went out, and I got hammered and puked and puked and puked for, like, two days. Fuck. Yeah, I was, like, proper sick, dude. I like remember, like I remember it now, bro. <laughs> is, you is, know? Your st- is your stomach pulsating? Oh, yeah, when you talk bro. about it? I was proper like wasted, like. I've been like that in a long time. Yeah, bro. I don't know how motherfuckers do it. Like people still live like that, mm. and I'm like, ugh. People live like that week in, week out. Yeah. And it makes me sad for them. This is very impromptu, but I want to see what you think. So I've I've definitely been thinking lately of giving it up because mm-hmm. it's not like. Well, I believe I can handle my piss. Some people might disagree. It's <laughs> fucking every other good mate's got a dumb story. I'm sure they could share. Uh-huh. But I, I reckon I'm all right. But the big reason why I'm looking at giving it up is because, like, I just know how much it takes away my energies from doing stuff like this. Like, oh, would I rather be an hour watching Netflix trying to get over the night before or would I be sitting with you having a conversation like this? I'd rather this. Uh-huh. So starting out, if I was to tell, what are some things you think I'd need to be aware of if I was to go that route? Just from what you went through... Bearing in mind, as we've stated before, you're not fucking an expert and yeah, sort of, sure. so, but just from what you know and what you experience. Well, I have worked in alcohol and drug harm reduction for six years. So this is something you should think no, yeah, 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 so. My personal and professionally, <laughs> yeah, yeah. professionally informed experience is, I don't know how much you drink, mm. so, but you would need to look at, like, why do you drink? And then consider, like, is it a coping mechanism ever or is it just something you do for recreation? If it's a coping mechanism, it's important that you have other things in place for when you feel stressed or you have other things in place for when you celebrate or other things that you have in place for when you might be feeling lonely or sad or you want to connect with your friends, you know, like what is it that you're going to put in that place? You know, like something that... Because if you don't find something to fill that hole, you just go back you, to the piss? You, you, it's, you can go back to okay, the Okay, just use that option. Yeah. Um... Yeah, so is it exercise, is it meditation, is it yoga, is it, what, you know, what it, what is it going to be? Whatever you, you like. to fill that hole with. Yeah, what do you fill that space with? Let's not call it a hole. Okay. Let's talk in positive terms. Cool. What do you fill that space with? How are you going to socialize with your friends if your friends are always like, do you want to catch up for a drink? Mm. And you're like, I don't drink. And they're like, oh. You know? It's funny because, so, like, so, so I've, sorry to digress, we'll come yeah. back there. But, like, so I've been pescatarian for the last... Two years? Choice. And that's been funny itself. Like, a lot of the conversations you're talking about with alcohol, I've had to have around food. Because well, I'm going to friends to visit, like, and they'll be like, oh, shit, hips is coming. I know. What are we going to... Well, I've been a vegetarian for 20 years. Yeah. So, do you think I'm the life of the party? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sometimes a vegan, but I'm a vegetarian. I'm not a vegan. Yeah. I'm a vegetarian, I'm a fucking feminist, and I'm fucking sober. Like, but unfortunately... So you're off all the list. I'm off all the list. <laughs> I never get invited, you know? No, that, my friends are cool, but it does make you a little bit socially mm, awkward because you know why? Because I think you become a mirror for people's behavior. Oh, for sure, And 100%. they're like, I'm, so, I'm wasted around the bro and he's sober. And yeah, yeah. So it's easier for them to tease you and ask you to drink yeah. than for them to reflect on adjusting their own behavior. Even yeah. if their behavior is not bad. Anyway, have something else in place that you like to do or something else that you like to have, like, in your hand if you go out. You know, if you go out, have a drink in your hand all the time and then people aren't going to ask you for a drink. Mm. You know, like, whatever it is. There's non-alcoholic beers, there's ginger beers. That's a real tangible thing you can do. 
have a reason to get up in the next day. Like goals are good. Yep. Again, I don't know your relationship with alcohol, but if you have uh, plans and strategies to have a reason to not get on the piss on Friday and Saturday, that's good. Well, I'm not going to drink tonight because I've got this, this and this. You know? I always so I did so I did nine months. That's the, ah, my cool. longest stint I've done. I did nine months, and when I planned, wouldn't plan that out or met that out. I just was volunteering a sober drive. All yeah, the time. and people appreciate <laughs> that. And I think also again, without knowing your relationship, like can be good to talk to a professional, like a therapist, psychologist, something like that, like to unpack some of those deeper drivers of your consumption of alcohol. Um, but if it's just, you're just a regular healthy relationship with alcohol guy, I think, yeah, having a, a non-alcoholic drink in your hand, having goals, having um, ways to socialize the alcohol. For me, it's the gym. But most of my friends drink and use other drugs. But uh, we bond over running, we bond over tie boxing, we bond over lifting weights, yeah. we bond over going to movies sometimes, going to a play. We have other things, mm. you know, because I'm, I don't want to go to a bar. I'll go out to a bar if there's music on that I like, but I'm not going to go out, to, you know what I mean? I might sound fucking stupid here, and maybe I live in a bit of a bubble, but are you kind of, it sounds like you're kind of insinuating in a little bit of a way, tell me if I'm wrong, that some people's relationships are purely built off getting on the piss together? Dude. That's a fucking fact. Oh, okay. Some people, like, all they have in common are the drugs that they use together. You talk to people in rehab and see, like, how many of their friends are they still with when they stop smoking meth or they stop doing cocaine or they stop partying all the time. Fucking hardly any of them. Because all they have in common is, you know, we're talking about, like, fucked up people gravitate towards one another. Yep. So it's the same sort of thing. If you start getting better and you start acknowledging your, who you are really... And you start developing some self-knowledge and you want to change your consumptive um, behavior around substances, you can't hang out with those people anymore. No. Because they're going to either drag you back into the fucking pit or um, it's going to be conflict and it's going to be difficult and you probably don't have that much in common. That's the hardest part about it, probably. Like, you know, that that nine months, that was only nine months. Fuck, I lost a shitload of friends just just doing nine months. Yeah, exactly. And I told them I wasn't doing it long term. I was like... It's just a short-term thing. But, but they don't still... want to hang out with you anymore. Yeah, no. And you probably don't want to hang out with them. Yeah. You know, like, the difficult thing for I definitely me... cut off those dudes that are like, hurry up, man, just have a, just have a fucking drink, bro. Stop yeah. being a pussy. I'm like, fuck, just I'm not, fuck I off. Know. People used to say to me, don't be a pussy. I'm like, dude, I'm fucking, you know, when I was young. I'm like, <laughs> I'll knock you out. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was like, dude, I fuck people up for sport. Like, I'm not a pussy. I'll put you to sleep. Yeah, yeah, do you know what I mean? People are like, test my manhood because I don't drink a poison. Alcohol is a carcinogenic poison. Mm. You know, it's as, it's as deadly as tobacco. It's responsible for all manner of social ills. It's present in the thing about 50% of... Oh, don't quote me on this, just about people committing suicide of alcohol in the system at like a high percentage. Uh, car accidents, family violence, uh, random assaults. But there's a multi-billion dollar multinational fucking global industries that continue to normalise the consumption of this shit product. In the fucking supermarket next to the fruit. Seriously? Yeah. What are little kids learning about that? Smoking's the one that fucks me off. Well, like, that, I, know, I know alcohol's just as bad. We if not treat worse. Alcohol but, like smoking. But smoking's fucking. It's, I know. At least you get drunk when you smoke. Like, yeah, yeah. getting drunk a little bit is actually fun. Like, anyone listening is like, you know, like getting drunk a little, getting tipsy, that's yeah, a good yeah, time. Yeah. Like, it's cool. Well, even like, so smoking weed, like, yeah. you get a bit of a buzz from it. Yeah, I've had some good time. You know, I did ecstasy once, and it was real cool. You know what I mean? But fucking but, like, cigarettes. But cigarettes, like, uh. 
But again, that's like an anxiety thing, you know? Mm. People who just go to things that actually make them think that they're going to feel better. I mean, scientifically, it doesn't, but yeah. And people talk a lot about New Zealand's drinking culture. So there's drinking culture and New Zealand's drinking culture. Do you think there's like a pretty fucking big difference? Do you, or do you think it's just like a drinking problem or do you think there is quite a distinct, it's for lack of a better term, next level when you go to... I don't actually know the data on that, so yep. I can't speak um, from a place of uh, expertise when I'm looking at New Zealand too. Mm. But I do... How about just around conversations? Uh, yeah, yeah. anecdotally, I think New Zealand has got like a high level of substance use mm. Yeah, compared to uh, comparable countries. I think the, the difficult thing that I hear is everyone's like, oh, Europe doesn't have a drinking problem, but that does. Yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. You hear that one a lot. Yeah. You start drinking from a young age. I know. It's normal, so they're fine. Yeah, but that's actually not true. Mm. Um, again, I couldn't quote you a study that says that, but I know they're out there. We can look some of that stuff up maybe later Dude, on to Maybe share. I'll send you some links. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like for you, we can the, follow, the we'll follow yeah, yeah, up yeah, yeah. here for sure. If you're curious, check this yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, just to, so you know the bro wasn't talking shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, yeah. The, there's the things there. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, so when we kind of, we reverted back to your own story to kind of come back. Um, just like, I just wanted people to understand kind of where you're coming from because we don't actually touch on oh, yeah, all yeah, that yeah. stuff. But so when it comes to... Well, there's so this like, thing called the, um, you know, so doing the work I do, like... This was interesting. I was talking about this test and shit, right? Mm. You know, I was giving, I was at a conference on, I was giving a talk around the damaging nature of modern pornography. And there's, uh, there's a body, the guy was presenting what's called the ACE test. It's called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Test, right? Okay, I knew that one. You, you should check it out. It's real interesting. Right down. You know, me always being curious to learn as much as I can. Yeah, about yeah, so I'm all about that stuff. yeah, yeah. I did this test, and it goes from, like, 1 to, I think, 9 or 10, and I get, like, a 7, which is, like, how dysfunctional you are. You Like, 1's, like, Brady Branch, 10's, like, 1's, 4 is. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. I, I get, like, a 7 on it. And so when I did that, I was like, all right, I can, I can like, understand my fucked upness a little bit more when I think about why I am the way I am and why I've been the way I've been. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So, and we've talked, we started touching on before, mm. before I wrote you back as Which well. Which isn't to sound like I'm feeling sorry for myself. I don't feel sorry for myself. I don't blame my parents. I love both my parents heaps. They're two people with didn't, my mum's the best, you know. They're just two people. And people have problems. And kids don't come with manuals. Kids don't come with manuals. And life doesn't come with manuals. And we're all born into a, these situations and we have shit stuff role model to us. And we live in a broader culture that's fucking shit. And like... Fucking, I'm not feeling sorry for myself. Mm. I'm just trying to like figure my shit out. And what? when I can figure my shit out, I can be a better practitioner and educator and keynote speaker. And you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. How did you get to that sort of place? Like, was there a time where you were like, "Fuck, my parents are shit"? Uh, or have oh, you always yeah. kind of been like, "No, no, no, like, you know, when I was a teenager, I was like, I didn't ask to be born, you know? Yeah, yeah. Fuck this shit. Kick a hole in the wall. Turn on some fucking Metallica loud, you know? Uh. So what sort of... And it's, like, cyclical, you know? Um, Are there, there like, I guess, definitive moments, I suppose, is what I'm asking, where you thought, fuck, or, like, workshop, you might have done a workshop or a conversation that you had where you went, shit, fuck, that's what they were going through, or that's why that happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and it's an ongoing journey, that's the thing. I think a lot of people think that, like, you've suddenly got it figured out. There you go to one class and you... Yeah, yeah, you're good, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I really started addressing all that stuff, and when I was, like, 24, 25, and I was having a bit of a rough patch, whatever... 
maybe 23 even. Sorry with my ages, but it's a long time ago. Mm. And my mum was like, what's Remember the, the head knocked fan? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my mum was like, what's the matter? And I was like, I just heard all the time, mum, you know. And uh, my mum was worried. So she sent me to a therapist for the first time, which was cool. And then I've been in therapy off and on since 23 or 24. Not consecutively. I have been in therapy consecutively for the last three or four years. Yeah. But um, that was a formative thing when it came to like unpacking my shit and starting to put myself back together. It's a massively untapped resource, eh? Oh, dude. Therapy, therapy. Like it's the, hard. The stigma's still around yeah, it. And... and that's why people like... That's why I talk about shit like this with you. I don't know you. You know, like, yeah. we just met. You seem and like I appreciate that. Partner. I appreciate that. But like, like I'm if glad that you one person listens it. to this and it's like, well, that guy seems like normal enough and he's gone to therapy and he's had all these problems, like, maybe they might. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I think we, you know, my Facebook header is... I think we need to talk about publicly how difficult life is rather than fronting on the internet. <laughs> and that's basically how I try and live my life. Yeah. And, um, you know, while I'm not Richie McCaw or any, like, hugely influential person, I'm uh, comfortable in knowing that I do reach a bunch of strangers and have a positive impact on their life. Oh, but yeah, that sort of says reach a bunch of strangers. <laughs> but, yeah, do, for sure. Do, do you know what I mean? yeah. And because people send me messages all around the world on Instagram or fucking whatever. Yeah, well, fuck, I emailed you out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, and that's cool. That's cool. You <laughs> know? As soon as I hear that, so people come to our small part of paradise, yeah. I'm like, I've got to get them. Yeah, and so, so when I um, when you talk about destigmatization, I think it's just a million conversations like this with whoever's willing to have an open, honest mm, chat with you, you know? Yeah. Like, that makes me. Uh, feel like I'm doing something worthwhile with my time. Like, if someone listens to this conversation that we're having and is like, oh, well, I can relate to that or this and bits and pieces, and then I'm like, cool, that's awesome. And then, like, going to therapy from 24 onwards, off and on, has been one of the best things ever, you know? And then I've had the martial arts in the background mm. and, the, and then my professional work around alcohol and drug use and the advocacy with mental health and stuff that's eventuated. It's all continued to be, like... The path of the wounded healer. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, is it funny that like, well, not funny, haha, but funny, ironic that like, people are like, oh, Rich, you're doing all these great things. Like, you're awesome for people, but kind of part of you, it sounds like you're going, well, fuck, like, I'm massively doing it for me too because I've got some shit I all need the to walk time, out. Dude. Sometimes they use, <laughs> oh yeah, sometimes they use. You, you're like, I need to pay you for doing this thing. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> sometimes like I use the hashtag like reminder to self. Like most mm. of the like motivational or like self-helpy shit I might put on Instagram it's you talking to it's me. just me talking to me or here's some shit I've done and I just kind of word it uh, more and more it's less like stream consciousness and it's more it's like here's something here's a tool you could use right mm. but I really started like venting my shit on Instagram when I was real depressed in hindsight like I was real depressed and like missing days at work and I didn't even know that I was depressed I just was like Fuck this. Yeah, I just eating too much ice cream, you know, like not going to training as much. Like, yeah, wake up, just couldn't go to work, bro. Like, and I'd just fucking got really into it, my cell phone. And I'd just be like, this is what I'm feeling. Here's a sad meme and here's some shit I'm thinking. And it was weird how it resonated with people. If you go through my Instagram historically, it's like a flow chart of my mental health, you know? It's pretty funny. And a There's a few it. people doing that at the moment. Oh well, this or not doing that. No, no, no. It's doing that. But but you, no, but you, no. It's you a can thing. See it. You can see it. The pattern. It's a thing. It's a funny thing, and I'm trying to figure it out, bro. Because like, 
um, a woman asked me, a lot of people these days are, are, are wanting to be public speakers or they want to be motivational speakers mm. or they want to be, they want to have the next big project. And that's all awesome. Like, I'm truly not denigrating that. But I had a meeting with a woman. She was like, can I catch up? I just want to know, like, blah, blah, blah. And she asked me, how long have you been in the mental health industry? And I was like, gross. What a gross turn of phrase. Like, I'm not in the mental health industry. I'm just a dude who talks about my experiences. Mm. Or people are like, how, how do you be a mental health advocate? And mm. I'm like, I don't know, advocate for good mental health? Do you know what I mean? But like people, yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. thing. Like everyone, yeah, yeah. everyone wants to build their personal well, brand these days. It's, people picked up that it's trending. Like people, it's, it's, it's trending and they can make money in it. Yeah, yeah. And they, that, or if they can't make money in it, they can make a name for themselves. That's it. it. And it's the, the fame and, or the cash. And it, yeah, and I'm like, or it's both. And like, mm. um, and I'm not going to lie that people pay me money to give talks at businesses. Mm. They do. Because I have personal history. And but you were doing that before you got paid. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like I was already doing and it. I've always just talked about my shit publicly. And the, like the pay is not to get the pay. The pay is so you got more time to get better about talking about the shit. Thank you for understanding that. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, I, <laughs> this is the thing. Like, when I started getting asked to talk, you know, I did radio in Auckland for 15 years yeah. uh, at BFM. And then I was doing the Nutters Club, which is national radio. I was doing... TV stuff, bits and pieces here and there, and always just talk about things on the internet. I did message boards, and then I did social media, and people just started inviting me to do shit. Yeah. And I was like, ah, sure. Because when your genuine passion resonates with people, they say they're genuinely interested. They're like, yeah, fuck, we want to get this guy involved. Yeah, well, I don't know what... And it's not until people go, oh, like, here, like here's for your time. And you're like, oh, you're going to pay me to... Well, I have this... My good friend of mine, um, she's very good with business and business savvy and stuff. She's like, show me your website. I'm like, what website? And she's like, you're an idiot. Like, I'll build you... She like, built me a website. You know, she started fielding a few inquiries for me and charging people money for, like, talking. Mm. And I was like, oh, really? There's a thing? She's like, dude... People get paid stupid, like, not me, but, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. People, people get paid yeah, yeah. stupid money for speaking these days. You know, like, those conferences that you pay money to go and watch, like, fucking Tony Robbins and yeah, shit or dude, whatever? Yeah, dude, Tony Robbins, mate, I don't know, you know? Like, like, you know? 20 grand a gig. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm, I'm not on that pay scale. I mean, mm. not saying I wouldn't be mad at it, but... Yeah, yeah. She's like... You're getting there. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then, yeah, just it's all evolved very organically. Mm. And like I said, I still feel like a phony sometimes. But I'm, everything I talk about is based in professional experience, academic understanding, and my life. Yeah. And people, I guess, have been like, that's a thing, right? So how do you do it? And I'm like, I don't know, man, just fucking do it. I liken it to, <laughs> you know what I mean? I liken it to DJing. Like, I, I, I've been DJing since 16. Mm. I'd play, I used to play for free all the time because I fucking loved it. And then when someone paid me, I was like, what? You're going to pay me to play music? Hard out, bro. I'm a bit of an old cunt now. I don't like playing as much because yeah. I just don't have the patience to put up with some people when I'm playing and things. So, I mean, I don't do it as often as I would like to. But, you know, it's, it's, it's very comparative in that you you love it, so you do it, and then people see that and they want to pay you. That was just... And it's the same with fighting. I didn't plan... Like, I'm not like... I wasn't like a successful pro fighter that lived off my prize money. Mm. I'm not like the bros now. But, like, I always liked it. And then people were like, we'll pay you money. Just fight a bit longer. Yeah. <laughs> and the fighting's a bit harder. 
And I'm like, all right, but I still would have done it anyway. You get paid to play. Yeah, exactly. Because you're going to be doing the shit anyway. Why not make a bit of money? It's the same there? with this. Like, if people weren't paying me to speak, I'd still speak. Mm. But I'm busy now, and I have a fucking house to pay for. Not, I, I don't but I have rent to pay. Mm. I have a child to provide for. I have a partner that I want to be equitable with. Mm-hmm. Fucking, I talk about suicide and rape and sexual violence all the time. It's nice to have a holiday once in a while. You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? Where I can turn off my phone to a degree. Have some light-hearted conversations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. It never happens. People are like, what do you do? And I'm like this. And they're like, well, can I tell you something? I'm like, ah! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. You mentioned becoming a dad. How, how did that flip the script or change things around? What What was that like? Yeah, so I'm a stepfather. Mm-hmm. Um, I met my, uh, my beloved Claire... Two and maybe three years ago. Well, I don't know. We've been together two and a half years. Yeah, I think we started seeing each other in 2017. And she has a son, yeah, who is two and a half. And um, his dad's awesome. Like, he's a, like a good co-parent with Claire, and he's in Jack's life. And um, So that's, like, that's another thing to navigate, you know? But yeah, I was quite like a bit like, oh, I don't know about kids, and mm. I I don't I've never had a, I don't have my own children, and I I used to go on about I have a good friend called Colin Mitchell. I've told this story once. I think it, Colin's a very interesting dude, and I said to him once, "Do you want to have kids one day, bro?" He's like, mm, "I don't know if existing is an inherently good thing," and I reflected on that, and I'm like, "True, life's difficult." Like, life is an inherently painful thing. That's, like, mm. the first truth of Buddhism. And for a long time, I was like, I don't want to bring anyone into this fucking world. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I go through that. But finding myself well. in love with a woman who has a son um, kind of thrust me into this position where I'm like, well, I could just not be with her or I can see how it goes. Mm. And, like, it's the best thing. Like, I love Jack profoundly and he makes me a better man and uh it brings all the work i do around masculinity home it's not just academic because mm. i want to be mindful that i'm role modeling to him the best possible way of being a man that i know how and it's it really deepens my experience of the world and it's difficult for me because what I've learned is that I'm quite actually emotionally distant, which people might sound, you know, it might be surprising for people, but I have quite mm, high walls up around my inner self that keeps me busy, that keeps me from getting too attached to any one thing. Interesting. Because are you familiar with attachment styles? It's like secure attachment. Uh, anxious attachment or avoidant, nope. avoidant attachment. Okay. Well, I, I have an avoidant attachment style, right? And that's what I've come to learn. Run down attachment styles. It's real interesting stuff, dude. Figure it, it, it really helps understanding your relationships. Cool. Yeah. Um, well, I've come to understand I have an avoidant attachment style. I never really let people get too close to me through a range of factors. I've had to work hard to... Um, address that so I can bond with a little boy <laughs> which is the coolest shit mm. like it's the coolest shit when a little boy is like will call out your name at three in the morning because he needs you to comfort him like that's dope like if I will not lie and say that I liked it at first like fuck 
because I'm not very good at sleeping, <laughs> yeah. you know, like I'm a bad sleeper. You know, I was talking to my ex-girlfriend today, you know, we saw each other like six years ago. We're, we're texting back and forth and was, she, she lives in Chile and uh, she texts, she sent me a text and I answered it at like 4 a.m. And I'm like, yo, it's 4 a.m. And she's like, you still like, <laughs> you know? And I was like, oh, really? I was, didn't sleep then? She, yeah. Anyway, I'm a bad sleeper. So when Jack was started not sleeping, I was like, oh, shit. When he was just a little baby, you know, two, two and a half. But um, now he sleeps most of the night. But when he calls out because he had a bad dream or whatever, I feel like it's a privilege and an honor to go and comfort him and make him feel safe. Mm. Cool, man. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. Yeah. Like you, did you ever think you would be at that point? Nah, not really. Like, you know, I was in a really long-term relationship um, for off and on eleven years. Mm-hmm. And Is this the lady you were married to? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we, we, you know, we we didn't plan on having kids or anything. And so I just kind of got in my head that I'd never be a father, you know. Mm. And then. Um, and did that bother you, or was it just something you kind of, like, yeah, that's how it is? Uh, no, it didn't really bother me, yeah. I don't think. I don't remember pining for children, and I was just cool with it, you know. And then, um, yeah, I know. And then, you know, fast forward some time, and then you fall in love with someone who has a child. We build a relationship with someone who has a child, and the love grows. It's been cool, because I get to love two people and get loved by two people. Awesome. And um, I think there is some degree of healing in that for me, you know? And I think uh, being able to, you know, I I never yell at Claire and Claire never yells at me and we don't call each other names and all the shit that I grew up with, mm. like, he will never experience. Cool. And that, that makes me feel good. <laughs> like just on a simple, so it just on a simple level, you know. I'm glad you can talk about it, and, man. And then, and then, like, um, yeah, like his his mom and his his dad are both really mm, intelligent, thoughtful people, and so I feel like happy to be able to just add a little bit to that equation, you know. Yeah. Push it, bro. <laughs> so you talked about you like, got kids. No, 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 yeah, don't, have, saying, yeah. don't have any children at the moment. Um, yeah, it's a big deal, you know. Well, it's one of those things, like, yeah, I know it's a big deal, but yeah. that's why I go backwards and forwards with the two. Like, I'm like, fuck, is it something I want to do? And I'm still not sure. Yeah. Like, to be honest, like, my current girlfriend at the moment, it's something I'm blatantly honest with her about when we got together. I was does like, look, she, does she want it? She, yeah, she definitely wants them. But I've told her, like, I said, I'm not sure. I'm not saying no, but I'm just at a place where yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. not 100% sure yet. Well, and then, you uh, strike me as someone who'd be a great father. I get told that, so thank you. I do, I do get told that a lot. I, I get told a lot that I'm very big brotherly. Yeah, you have a nice warmth to you. There's a lot of people. It's actually funny. I was at, I've started a new job. Yeah. And today, one of the guys who's, who's pretty quiet, he kind of lost his shit. Like, he got upset at work today. And um, so I was like, kind of pulled him aside and ha- had a big brother, little brother kind of conversation yeah, with George. him. I just let him vent it and let him get him off his chest because he strikes me as someone that would have just sat with it and not said anything yeah, to anyone. Yeah, that's cool, bro. So like, I was just like, bro, let it out. I said, there's nothing wrong with being angry. I was like, you think I'm pretty extroverted and out there. I said, it's just because I speak how I feel. Mm. Um, it's not anything to do with being a showman or anything like that. I said, I know you look at me and think that I'm just great with people. I said, it's just, I get... If I get fucked off, I'll say I'm fucked off. So I was called about to let him have a bit of a vent. Yeah, cool. Yeah, that's cool. That's what we need. You know, I've been talking about masculinity here and there. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to segue yeah. into next, you know. It's, it's, 
um, yeah, what what are your thoughts around kind of what we've been taught and what actually should be? Yeah, cool. So that's the core part of my co-papa these days. Mm. So I started working for the Ministry of Social Development 2013, off and on, and I think White Ribbon, New Zealand, around the same time, in um, family violence prevention. And um, I used to do more nuts and bolts stuff about consent and what sexual consent is and being an active bystander. If you see someone who might be at risk of sexual predation, how to healthily get involved in that and started exploring concepts around rape culture and why we have such a high prevalence of sexual violence, not just here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, but the world. And that's led me to coming to look at masculinity. You know, the, the tri- and this is the thing, mas- people think masculinity, they think sex, like being a man. But masculinity, the traditional associations associated culturally with being a man. And that's an important distinction that so we have to make. So that's things like... That's things like boys don't cry. To talk. Yeah, yeah, boys don't cry. Um, you're scucks and you score heaps of chicks if you're a real scucks. man. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I talk to teenagers, bro. I have to know what's up. <laughs> yeah. I talk to teenagers, I have to know about like skunks and wood smash and all this shit, you know. Um, fuck it these up. days I'm like, fuck Urban Dictionary. What's yeah, 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 yeah. You gotta grab like a niece well, or a nephew I'm, or something like that. Yeah, right, well, no, I'm lucky because I, te- I train teenage boys how to fight. I'm a kickboxing coach. So you hear it all day. So I hear it all day. That's my, that's my blessing. Co informs me. Mm. Anyway, yeah. Uh, well, so the traditional notions of masculinity that research tells us that men are expected to buy into are things like having dominance over women, being physically muscular, a primacy of work, um, being financially affluent, um, the use of violence, uh, disdain for homosexuals, and indeed anything feminine. You know, boys are uh, acculturated to that from a very young age, from the toys that we give them, which are guns and cars and uh, tools and action figures, and girls are taught... Like, fuck, do I buy my nephew's <laughs> Nerf guns now? Nah, dude. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you can, but but think about what you're teaching it. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, whereas what do girls get? Think about the toys. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Even the colours, you know. Boys for blue, pink for girls. Those aren't biological. Those are cultural. Mm. And it's the same with our behaviours. You know, like, boys and girls, they're outliers, right? But if you put, like, a bell curve over a whole bunch of mm, ways boys and girls are, they've got a lot more in common than they have than they don't. But it's the outliers, which tend to be the stereotypes that we associate with masculinity and femininity. That's the thing. Like, one of the things I talk about is um, a lot, and it comes up consistently, is people think in extremes. Yeah, people think, people think in yes or no, yeah, black and white. Black and white. Um, We're all know. just a bit grey area. Yeah. And it's the same with um, gender-based behaviours. But we teach boys from a young age that we don't cry, we don't talk about our feelings, be assertive, take risks... And we tell girls that they're emotional and they talk too much. Yeah, exactly, bro. Yeah, exactly. Girls are bossy. Boys are assertive. You know what I mean? Like, girls are expected to be passive and stay at home. A girl who's sexually confident is a slut. A boy who's sexually confident is a stud and a legend. Skucks. Skucks, you know? Like, all that. You know? And and we see that in our mainstream music. We see that in our advertising. We see that in our movies. We see that with... uh, um, 
the normalization and sexualization of aggression and violence towards women through mainstream pornography, the lyrics and the songs that we listen to, and then of course the actions of the people around us, the way our brothers, fathers, friends are. Um, but what the research tells us, and the American Psychological Association and the Australian Psychological Association both came out last year and said, here is a group of guidelines for addressing masculinity. Like after, you know, decades of research, they're like, mainstream masculinity is a problem. And we actually need to change these hegemonic norms about what it means to be a man for men's sake. Because men make up the bulk of all fatal car accidents. Men make up the bulk of all suicides. Men make up the bulk of all people who are incarcerated. Men are the biggest perpetrators of homicide and victims of homicide. Men are the biggest perpetrators of sexual violence, biggest perpetrators of domestic violence. Not because they've got a cock and balls and they're men and they have hairy chests and beards, mm. but because we've pushed you into this box of behavior that no one can actually live in. And we don't give you a healthy safety net to talk about things and let things out and vent and be who you really are. And we take your human connection and warmth and kindness away from you because boys don't hug and boys don't hold hands and boys don't kiss each other on the cheeks because that's what faggots do. Mm. And we use faggot as a derogative term because it's feminized, you know? If we break those ideas down and if we let men be vulnerable and if we let men be emotional, if we let men have interests that aren't sports, cars and girls and alcohol, if we let men pursue poetry and writing and being a teacher and being a dad and being a caregiver and being into baking and play rugby and lift weights at the same time because it's not one or the other, then it's going to have really positive ramifications for, for men and boys and girls and women and transsexual and intersexual and all people. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, But we continue to, through a range of tropes and cultural uh, tools, enforce this idea of masculinity from a young age. And that's done with intent? I would say probably not. You know, when a dad says, oh, don't cry, son, he's not saying necessarily a bad thing. He's recreating what he knows. Mm. But at the same time, there are people who are adults who push back about this conversation that I'm having now. You know, if you look at the comments on my YouTube talk, (laughs) it's all uh, my TED talk on YouTube, it's all negative. It's the hardest part about what I do here with the podcast. I knew about you already from a lot of what you've done, but yeah. usually I get guests, I try and do no research. Yeah, right. So I can have a fresh perspective. Because I bet you do a million interviews, bro, so you probably get asked the same shit a lot. I the only way that I'm going to attack it from a different angle is if I don't know what the fucking anyone else has ever asked you. Yeah, I appreciate it. So, so I just try and come in fresh, like, hey, That's how cool. you doing, bro? What's I, going on? I've really enjoyed our talk. Cool. But you know, like, my YouTube talk is on. My TED talk. I'll take it out straight. Oh, like, sorry. now that, now that we're, yeah. we're nah, done, I can like, go like, have a look now. No, nah, but, like, you know, my TED talk, I had a bad day. I was quite nervous for whatever reason. I'm not normally a nervous speaker. I didn't, I don't like my TED talk. But the ideas in it are strong mm. and they're evidence-based and I'm proud to have presented them. <laughs> All the comments of people going, this guy needs some Jordan Peterson, toxic masculinity is oh, not a thing. Like, this is so wrong. And, and, you know, like, does he have Down syndrome? Like, all this shit, right? It's interesting because, fuck, I've listened to, like, a lot of Jordan Peterson stuff. I wouldn't say you exactly conflict. Well, I don't... I mean, there's there's some parts, obviously, where you do. But I wouldn't say you're direct opposite. I know, me neither. You need butt heads. There are parts of it, of Jordan Peterson's work. I have a very limited knowledge of his work. Part of it I find wrong and offensive. Other parts, like the self-help stuff, I'm like, yeah, totally, dude. Mm. That's good advice for young men. 
Anyway. Yeah. Um, what I've found is that people do push back about these things. I had this guy that I blocked on Facebook go, you little girl, you fucking pussy. He emailed me. How, you know, fucking toxic masculinity is not a thing. I'm like... You were calling me a little girl and a fucking pussy. You are role modeling toxic masculinity, dude. Oh, because yeah. you're you're trying to devalue and degrade me by using feminized things mm. as a negative. I'm like, that's you. You are highlighting. You're the, the epitome point. of. You're what the you're epitome of what exist. you're saying doesn't exist. You know what that's I mean? Fucking out of it. So there is. So while you you ask me, are these things done intentionally? I would say, probably not. Well, it had to it had to come from somewhere. So do you think back? Was it, was I, it a, yeah, a control, what, me- a control mechanism, or or you don't know the why behind? I think this. I think patriarchy is a system of power that keeps men in. Yep. You know. Uh, in control. control. Yeah. And I think there's some. I'm not. Yeah. I think. I think. I think these concepts around masculinity are part and parcel of maintaining patriarchy. It means dominance in society, positions of economic, political power. Household power. I think there's something in that, but I'm not entirely sure how those things inter- inter- yep. intersect. Um, so I can't really speak to where it comes from, but I can talk about... Not yet, tri- anyway. Yeah, but I can talk the about... The theory you're working on. Yeah, but I am thinking about the transmission of these things. You know, I don't know where it all started necessarily. Yeah, the Bible, you know, like men will be the leaders of their household and a woman's place is to be subservient and blah, 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 right? Yeah. There's all of that, you know. Woman couldn't v- vote. Woman couldn't own property. Woman couldn't drive. Uh, you know, those are relatively recent phenomena. Yep. And some countries are still not that way. Marital rape only became illegal like a few decades ago. Some um, countries, they still can't drive. Yeah, totally. You know what I mean? So that's definitely by design. When people who have power are historically... Don't hold on to it. They want to hold on to it, whether that's by race or by sex or by economic class. People who have quote-unquote privilege are often unaware of their privilege but will do everything they can to maintain it. Mm. So when I see negative comments about my work around masculinity transformation, I'm like, you've got privilege and you're just unaware of it. It's cool. And it's a funny thing, like, having a degree of, like, a public life now, mm. I've had to learn to um, build a degree. Not, not recognise yeah, every comment that comes Yeah, 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 because I'm that still, there's that, like, I told you at the start of this You're still the bro from West Auckland. I'm still the bro from West Auckland who's like, fuck, gee, do you want to fuck the one out? You know? I'll check you out. Yeah, bro. There is, there is that, but there's also a little kid who's like, wants everyone to love me. Uh. And it hurts. I'm like, I'm just trying my best out here. And I get like overly defensive, but what I've come to learn is that I'm like, who cares? Their shit's their shit. I'm like, hey. how you perceive me is more a reflection of you. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you know what? It's not my job for you, everyone to like me. You know, I just Which keep is hard to, like, it's especially hard. if you still got that little kid. Yeah, I still got that little kid, but I'm just like, we spend so long in our lives trying to be liked. But and yeah. And you get to like 25, 30, you're like, fuck, this isn't. I know. Like but you know what, man? Like, for all the people who say mean shit to you publicly, mm. Um, there's way more quiet people out there who actually are fucking into your shit. Just yesterday, I was at a book launch. My friend, Tourette's Dominic Hoey, he launched his new book, and a girl came up to me and she's like, hey, I saw you, I follow you on Twitter, and um, I really love everything you talk about, and you do, thank you. I was going for a run up the hill the other day, and I stopped halfway, I was like, fucking puff. And this lady beeped her horn, and I thought she'd make fun of me. 
and I pulled my headphones out anyway, and she's like, hey, I just want you to know I really appreciate what you do. And shit like that makes all those negative comments and, like, getting dragged into political scandals and any of the shit that happens in a small country mm. if you're a public person worth it. Cool. You know, like, it's fucking mean, like, when someone will come up to you at the supermarket and be like, hey, man, like, I've been through this, this, and this, and the shit that you do helps me. Like, it makes any number of difficult experiences and sleepless nights and insecurities worth it. Cool, man. So there's only really one question I make sure I ask every guest that comes on the show. Um, most of it's pretty free-flowing conversation, like what we've had. There's only one question I ask, and that is like, well, actually, you probably could say it. I usually premise by saying, bearing in mind that you're not a health professional. Yeah, sure. Um, there's someone out there who's listening right now who's feeling incredibly down and out, perhaps on rock bottom. What would your advice be to help them... Well, I don't want to say get out of it, but improve their situation. Yeah, ask for help is the the big one. Like, open up, you know, like, let people know that you're hurting and that you're struggling and that you need not just support, but you need some guidance. You know, I think a lot of people suffer in silence until it's too late. Mm. Um, and then when that helps out there, I know it can be hard, but accept that help. Whether it's someone who's like, look, I'll drive you to the GP. I'll drive you to the clinic. Do you want to go to an AA meeting? Do you want to go to an NA meeting together? Do you want to go for a walk together? Do you want um, a book on meditation? Do you want to go to a meditation class together? Do you know, like, accept that help. And then it's difficult when your mental health's bad or your emotional health's bad or both, but you have to understand that it's a process. Healing's a process. You're not just going to go to one therapy session. You're not just going to go to one gym class. You're not just going to have one sober night and be healed. You have to do that all the time, every week, every day. You have to have practices in place. And it's about establishing those practices. And that's why when I'm talking about social connection and the fact that humans need to be connected and we're not isolated individuals, we need people around us. They're the scaffolding that will help us heal. Mm. You know, like if we're going for these big profound changes where it's quitting drinking or healing from a sexual assault or healing from an alcoholic parent or recovering from depression, you can, it's really, really impossible to do that. It's difficult, nothing's impossible, but it's difficult to do that alone. So accept the scaffolding, accept the people around you, helping you. Accept the scaffolding, I like that. A lot of bros will relate to that because I'm trying to think about yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are the tradies say? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I'm real shit with all that stuff. I can't <laughs> dig a hole, man. <laughs> but... But accept the scaffolding, you know, like help people. Um, and then like, you know, if anyone else has seen this, check in with your friends. If your friend hasn't texted you for a while, give them a phone call, go around to their house. Do you know what I mean? Because when you're really in a dark place, you're not always going to reach out. And if you're listening to this and you are, and you're halfway there, let me encourage you to do it. Uh, but it's the people around us when we're hurting that can really make or break us. When I, in 2011 or 12, when I first started experiencing depression, I had a manager who'd worked in social services for a while. And I was missing heaps days from work, bro. It's funny they didn't get rid of me. But she, I come to the office one day, I just would mope about, you know. And she said, hey, do you suffer from depression? And um, I started crying, like in the middle of the right fucking... There there. Yeah, right in the fucking middle of the workplace. So no. <laughs> Um, yes. <laughs> and, that, and I rang her this year, bro. That was eight years ago. And I rang her this year because I'd bombed into the supermarket or some shit. And I was like, hey, I just wanted you to know that you asked me that question. 
And that's when I started going back to therapy and stuff. Yeah. And and that's when I started getting on the road to getting better. And it was a long one, man, for me. Because I would backslide and all this stuff. And I was in this in and out, off and on relationship. And had heaps of fucked upness coming to the fore. But um, I honestly can sit with you now and tell you that I'm happy and I'm well. And it was because... Not because solely, but a little bit of that was a woman asking me if I was all right. So if you're out there listening and you ever think someone's being not like themselves, they don't seem well, ask them if they're all right and then help them help themselves. Cool, bro. Awesome. Well, any final words you want to have before I let you rock and roll and finally maybe have a bit of a rest after having a hectic day flying in, rushing to get a kite? Nah, like... I do a lot of these and I've really enjoyed talking to you. You have a nice energy with you and, um, you know, I hope to see you again in the future and thanks for being interested in my life and, and, and letting me talk a bit about it. I just know you've got a, uh, you've got a way of communicating, bro, that I know a, brothers, a lot of brothers would, would relate to. Oh, thanks, And, and as, we, as we say, like, if one person can hear it, you said it yourself, if one person can hear it, make a swap. That's what I feel bro, right with that that's the too. thing, bro, like... Fucking... I go and talk to men... And boys. I talk to girls too, women too. But a lot of people who talk to the brothers who need to hear it, they speak in a language they don't understand. Mm. I'm like, fuck, bro, you've never had a fist fight. You've never had a car accident. You've never necessarily had someone hurt themselves. Mm. You've never blah, 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 blah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And fuck. That's why I'm here doing it. I'm like, how can they relate to you? Do you know what I mean? Like, it's all, like, no disrespect. Yeah, yeah. Like, your co is your co-papa, and I'm sure it's helping people in your own way, but, like, I just try and be like, here's some shit, I know. I know and, there's and, a lot of people out there helping and, and doing kind of a similar thing, but... It's got to be relatable. If I can't relate to it, then I know there's other people that that's, can't. I know, so let me why, create something that, that people can yeah, relate to. Bro, that's why, why the bro Mike King is awesome, or John Kerwin's awesome, or uh, fucking Jimmy Hunt's awesome. Everyone speaks their own language, yeah. and it reaches people in a way that... You know, and I just feel lucky that I grew up one way and then I went to university and became broader uh, in my conception of society and who I am. And, like, I can adjust my register depending on who I'm talking to. You, mm. Do you know what I mean? Yep. I can go speak to someone. Well, I was, I was afforded that, like, as much as it sucked at the time, it's the blessing that came to me being bro- moved around from house to house. Yeah, yeah. Is that I'm adaptable and I can talk to different people I know. from different places. How I'm talking to now is how I naturally talk, you know? Cool, if, same. If, if I go, if I go <laughs> talk to Parliament, I might be, like, a little more formal. Yeah, you, yeah. you know what I mean? Use some bigger words. Yeah, use some bigger words. Use more data. I, I won't say G more, you know? Whereas I won't say I go, skucks in yeah, Parliament. Yeah, do you know what I mean, though? Yeah, yeah, Or if I sure. go to the Marae and I'm talking to some bros with passion, I'm not going to speak like that because what, what what's that going to do? Mm. Who's this fucking white guy? Who's this fucking white guy? Mm. Stupid, you know? He doesn't just, know. Just have to, he doesn't know. <laughs> yeah, hard out. So, yeah. Anyway. Cool. Thank you, bro. Awesome, bro. There we go. Former mixed martial artist, Muay Thai kickboxer turned white ribbon ambassador, Mr. Richie Hardcore. You can find him on all socials. If you want to see what the bro is up to, he's always popping up and speaking about things. Uh, no doubt now if you see him on TV or if you hear him on the radio, you'll be like, oh, that's the guy that we see about. It's one of those, he's one of those familiar faces type guys. So make sure you go hunt him down, see what he's about and see what he's up to. Um, also make sure you give us a review wherever possible, whether you're listening on Spotify, iTunes, Overcast, iHeartRadio, any of that stuff. 
You can leave us a review there on the platform, or you can also head along to our Instagram and Facebook pages too. We'll catch you next time right here on the Best Side Podcast. Hey, kuna.